Hi, everybody. Welcome to Podcast of a Lady on Fire, where we explore the filmmaking themes and community involved in Celine Sciamma's Portrait of a Lady on Fire. We are your hosts. I'm Laurel Hutchineva. And I'm Audrey Nee. A couple of quick disclaimers before we dive in. Neither of us speak French, so apologies as usual if we mess anything up. And this episode will most likely have some spoilers, so just a heads up in case you have not seen this film yet. And today we have a very special guest with us. We have Laura, who is an archaeologist, historical consultant, and history teacher from London. Thank you so much for joining us and crossing time zones for us. Hi, Laura. Hello. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> that's okay. Thank you for having me. It's very nice to be involved in this film that's changed all of our lives. <laughs> yeah. Thank you also for reaching out to us with this idea for the podcast. And you were able to give us some insights into some of the contextual stuff behind why, for example, this story might be set in the 18th century and just generally more background. So it seems like a really cool idea and I'm glad we were finally able to make this happen. Yeah, thank you. I mean, for me, like having watched the film as a film that is set in a historical time period, quite a lot of the discussions that seem to be happening around the film kind of forget the fact that it's set in a historical time period, I think as a history teacher, actually watching the film changed my opinions and perspectives from a professional point of view as well about how to teach history and stuff. So yeah. That's super cool. Yeah. I'd love to get into some of that stuff in a bit. But first, how about we start with some of the intro questions? So to kick things off, we're going to ask you a few introductory questions. These help us and the audience understand your early impressions of and relationship to this film. So let's start with how did you first hear about Portrait of a Lady Empire? Well, I didn't really hear much about it at all, really. I'd actually just seen a poster for it on the tube on the way to work, on the metro subway, <laughs> and saw that it was, yeah, like, you know, a historical film, clearly a queer film, because the poster that they were using in the UK was the Fireside Kiss. Oh, oh, I didn't huh. know that. And I was like, oh, okay, like it's a film I might watch but didn't really think anything of it hadn't heard anything about it and like usually foreign language films in the UK are not really you know like major things yeah I didn't think about it I mean I don't know that must have been like December or something when I first saw or February I can't remember when it came out in the UK but I didn't see it until July when it ran it came up on uh, Amazon Prime mm -hmm. I was like oh there's that film that I vaguely remember seeing a poster about you know I'll give it a go and I was basically half watching it because I was like, oh, it's probably some really slow French film and like nothing much <laughs> is going to happen. And I was like doing some paperwork and like had it on in the background kind of. And then just at some point I was just on the edge of my seat being like, what am I watching? What is going on? Do you remember when that was? When you were like, wait a second, I need to actually pay attention. Definitely. My ears pricked up a little bit at the Orpheus scene. So I was like, ooh, some, ooh they're even bringing mm -hmm. Greek mythology into this. Another one of my favorite topics. <laughs> so yeah, like the fact that it had like music and art and it was set in a historical time period and then it had like Greek mythology. I was like, oh, this is really interesting. It's like hitting a lot of the things that I'm interested in. But definitely... From the fight scene till the end, I was just like transfixed, like Aww, yeah. just like, whoa. And I, this is the first film I've ever seen that I feel like you can actually analyze like a piece of literature or text or artifact, which I obviously do in my job all the time. And I'm just so used to that. And I've never seen a film that I feel like can be analyzed in that kind of way. And like the more you think about it, the more kind of, you know, deeper it gets, the more meta it gets and, and yeah. Tell us about it. 
I mean, yeah, my general feeling when I finished the film was basically just like, it was a French film, I had some bizarre shots in some places, but overall I just feel like it was terrible to be a woman in basically all time periods. <laughs> and then I just thought about it more and more and more, and then just like more and more layers like came out of it. And it just, yeah, I basically just didn't sleep. <laughs> like, no, I genuinely didn't. Yeah. I, went, I, I went to sleep at like about seven in the morning because I was wow. just like, wow. whoa. <laughs> just thinking and I had like you're getting some books off my shelf and just being like you know whoa, whoa like how does this link to this and this and this and, <laughs> and none of my friends had seen it that was the thing as well because like I said in the UK it kind of I don't know like didn't seem well people that I know would have liked it had not seen it mm -hmm. and I was like has anyone seen this film like I need to talk <laughs> about it yeah. and that's how I found your podcast basically oh great like, I, need, <laughs> I need someone to like help me analyze this film and yeah I was like I take it back. It's not a slow, well, it is a slow burn French film, but you need to watch it. So, yeah. <laughs> it's interesting because I feel like that is a shared experience yeah. where this film takes on a life of its own after you finish it and it sort of takes over your brain. Like, because I've, I've heard that story from other people too, is that like they couldn't sleep for hours and hours because they just were lying awake thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, it was in a kind of professional way of just like, this is genuinely making me think about history in a different way. And like I said, I think that's the thing that's maybe not the conversations that haven't been had about the film yet is actually like, you know, what are we teaching children about history? What mm. are we saying about the past? And what messages do we give in the classroom by repeating certain stories or the way in which we present them actually has a huge impact on how you see things and like you know actually in a kind of in a way in a kind of sad way you know like I mean I've always loved history it's obviously you know my passion and why I've become a, a history teacher you know been involved in research for tv documentaries and this kind of stuff and an archaeologist so digging things up from that's why I said the Greek stuff like particularly interested me but I think when I was at school I just never really like thought that learning about women in history was particularly interesting because A, there was supposedly no evidence for what they were doing and B, they just kind of seemed to be in these positions of inferiority where I didn't like see myself being that woman in history. So I guess almost like subconsciously, I would always think that I was, you know, one of the more interesting male characters, I guess, like right, in history, yeah, you know, yeah. because th those are the stories that you hear again and again and again. And I think actually like seeing, you know, Eloise and Marianne as these, women who are clearly constrained by the you know invisible patriarchy in which we all live but they still have agency or they try to have agency within the constraints that are forced upon them and i was like i can see myself in that mm. and actually the anger that eloise has i can see myself in that and yeah i think it's that thing of representation isn't it like of just like it matters it genuinely matters because actually it's yeah it made me think about well when we're at school telling kids all these same stories and not widening the stories or thinking about them in newer more modern perspectives like actually that's a problem because we're repeating things that we need to try and change for the better i guess yes totally <laughs> right. yeah, yeah absolutely agree and it's so important for the people who you know might not even directly see themselves represented it's important for them to see how it affects people who so if you grow up only seeing men in historically iconic roles how history has treated women is sort of an afterthought so to be able to place women a little bit more authentically in these stories i think is important for everyone whether they're a woman or not you know yeah and there's always the, i mean there's big debates at the moment you know in, in the kind of education sector about like what curriculum 
should be taught and what you know what what is the content that uh, we are teaching and you know some people think that including these things you know like it's it, you know has the danger of becoming tokenistic or being taken out of context and that kind of thing but like talking about more stories is just also better history because it's it's not like the women didn't exist it's not like <laughs> right. do you know what i mean like they were there right. and so like it, we, we've just ignored them and, and right. actually that needs to be rewritten into the story somehow i guess and so i mean like on that point in the uk you know one of the classic topics in history is you know talking about the tudors and henry the eighth and his six wives and since watching the film i basically just like couldn't I, I, it got to me teaching it again in the, the september and i just couldn't see that story of henry and his six wives in the same way because i was just like hang on why are we just going like oh how almost like funny that he had six wives that's actually Ugh. like a thing in itself like let's actually deconstruct that and obviously his fourth wife anne of cleves literally the whole story is about you know a painting being sent to him he likes her she comes and then supposedly he doesn't like her face and they you know get divorced and i was like oh my god like this is like wow, this is yeah i redid the whole kind of like scheme work and did it from the women's perspectives and actually trying to like put their story into you know what's going on there and by doing some research into the women actually like found out like really interesting things like apparently Anne of Cleves for instance there was a strange kind of like Tudor like late medieval went into Tudor period like tradition where like the man that was going to marry the woman would dress up as some other type of person and just try and like grope her and see if she reacted and realized that it was like her actual husband-to-be and whether she would succumb to him or whatever and I was like okay this is really yeah let's deconstruct that as well because that's also really problematic but basically Anne of Cleves apparently punched Henry in the face because <laughs> he was like 49 and you know she's like much younger yeah. and like and she's yeah. like what's this man like and, and then from that like actually is that also why we have this story of like, oh, well, she was ugly and that's why. Right. right. Yeah. You know, he didn't want to marry her. Is it because, yeah, we're hearing it from his perspective and historians afterwards rather than from the female perspective. Right. And that narrative is a very common, like, modern narrative. Like, oh, totally. if you hear it from the misogynist perspective, it's like, oh, she was a fucking bitch. And so that's why I dumped her. And it's like, mm, maybe she just figured that you were a creep and she punched you in the face and you feel stupid about it. So, yeah. I mean, that's what Darvo is, right? What? <laughs> I don't know. Oh. What is that? It's deny, attack, oh. and reverse victim and offender. Wow. It's a, it's a strategy abuser. Why didn't use. I know this, like, Right. That sounds like Trump's M.O. Like yeah, that's absolutely whole... Trump's M.O. and probably Henry VIII's too. Yeah. Deny, attack, reverse, victim, offender. Wow. Yeah. 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 yeah with the Henry thing. Like, and then his fifth wife, Karen Howard, is like 19 and he's like, yeah, like 51 <laughs> or something. And like, oh, uh, and it's just like, oh, no. And then like she gets blamed. And even in historical books that were written in like 2016, the historians themselves who are often men, have said, oh, you know, like, Catherine, oh, she was, like, such a stupid girl. Like, she shouldn't have had an affair with someone else. And, like, that's why, obviously, she got her head cut off. And I was like, hang on a minute, again, like, I basically can now see Eloise's character. But because of the way that Adele Hanel played it, yeah, the fiery spirit of her, I can now see it in, like, so many other stories that I didn't necessarily see it before. Do you know what I mean? And, like, mm -hmm. you know, another, you know, queen from medieval period, you know, should have been one of the first queens of England, Matilda, but her cousin Stephen, like, basically takes the throne off her. Stephen. And she's like, 
no, let's have a war about this. <laughs> Again, like people don't usually talk about or learn about Matilda in schools and, and the massive civil war that happened in the 12th century. But I can imagine like, yeah, like, the, you know, that kind of fiery spirit of rebellion yeah. from Eloise. Especially if it was my cousin Steve. It's like, no, Steve. Yeah, it's, like, it's always oh, Steve. Steve. Like, yeah, it's always yeah. Steve. <laughs> And, and also, like, the peasants' revolt in 1381 in Britain, like, you know, it's always like, oh, this guy called Watt Tyler, like, decided to bring all the peasants and attack London. And actually, new research that's come out has shown that a woman called Joanna Ferrer actually led the whole rebellion. Of course. Wow. So, like, Great. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, let's talk about that. <laughs> How do your students respond to those, not revisionists, but like... Oh, it's sort of like reframing. Yeah. Because I'm sure they've heard some of these, like the Henry VIII stuff before, at least in in highlights or whatever, but how do they respond to getting other stories? Well, I think that's what I'm definitely trying to do in the classroom is to try and bring those different perspectives, you know, particularly in high school. Like, you don't want to just keep repeating the same thing again and again. And I think, again, that happens too much in education is that we just kind of, you know, repeat the same thing and don't get into the complexity until much later. And actually, kids can access and understand more complex things than maybe we we take them credit for mm-hmm. and yeah like with the reframing the Henry VIII story I think it helped both the boys and the girls in the in the class to to understand a better perspective of what is going on there and yeah I, th- I think kids in general will take relatively at face value what you're presenting in a way which also shows how important teachers are like as, mm-hmm. a, as a job and it's just about giving them the evidence though as well isn't it like it's not like you're trying to push some kind of agenda which again i think that sometimes the debate about what should be in a curriculum turns a little bit kind of like political in some kind of way but it shouldn't be it's just here is some other historical evidence like we could look at these sources or we could look at these ones so let's just look at these ones instead you know like with the peasants revolt thing like there is documentary source evidence of this woman being in court over her role as the leader wow let's look at that yeah. instead of like a painting from like 200 years after the event that's like rolled out again and again but do you know what i mean yes, like it's that absolutely. kind of thing of like it's just history like the interpretation of history through time is also interesting in itself so yeah i'm trying to write a textbook at the moment like a, a new textbook for schools oh good Perfect. i was hoping you were yeah. <laughs> basically to do this so. oh that's excellent so this is all awesome, and we'll we'll get into this a little bit more. But before we get into sort of the, the main stuff that we're here to talk about, we still want to ask you a few general fun questions about portrait. <laughs> so I'll start with which scene do you feel is the most underrated one? The scene that people should maybe consider more carefully. I don't know. I think there's a couple. Like it's a, just after Marianne smudged the painting, and Eloise comes back, and it's so like short but like the way when she turns around and like there's a slight kind of like raise of eyebrow it's like she's like you've accepted my challenge and like (laughs) i'm gonna challenge you more now Mm -hmm. maybe that if you don't notice i mean again the the orpheus scene uh, there's loads to deconstruct there particularly eloise's responses but also i quite like marianne in the art gallery at the end like when the guy is like mansplaining her own painting (laughs) but i think it's quite (laughs) i think it's quite interesting that she's there by herself standing by her painting like in a place where she can't actually even put the painting under her own name yeah and yet she still is there like i'm gonna see people's reactions to it like i think that's quite again quite interesting to think of from a historical point of view she also very comfortably was like you know i submitted it under my father's name but it's actually mine this is mine yeah you kind of get the impression that she's just standing there 
every time someone passes, she's like, this is, I did this. That's fine. My, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I did this. Well, it was quite interesting, actually, that the guy isn't like, oh, no, I hate the painting. It's awful. Right, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 He actually offers a, well, you know, yeah, right. an interpretation. <laughs> but, like, it's it's a, an art criticism, isn't it? Like, yeah. in a genuine way, I guess. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, speaking of paintings, our next question for you is if you could bring home one painting from the film, which painting would it be? Mm, well, it's not quite a painting, but I think that like some of Marianne's like early sketches, maybe. That counts. Um, you know, like her sketch, yeah. like Marianne's sketchbook, I would quite like to see <laughs> from the, yeah, like that time when, yeah, she's sees Eloise once and then suddenly has like 60 sketches right. of like, yeah. her face. <laughs> I know, yeah. From like different angles and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. From memory, of course. Right, right. What a professional. It's like a slow TikTok or something. <laughs> yeah, maybe she's going to make it into a flip book. <laughs> like... Oh, yeah, right, right. Yeah, got it, got it. Okay, I'm on board now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. The last one that we have in the series is so this one is one that you actually offered up, and I, I think it's a good one. Were there any scenes that initially confused you? Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, this idea of it being a, a French film from the start, I was like, there's going to be something, like, weird about this ending or something. <laughs> but, <laughs> or like, oh, like, the way they frame things is going to be really artsy. <laughs> but, like, I genuinely don't understand why Marianne doesn't call out when Eloise is literally running to the cliffs supposedly to kill herself, because yes. that's what she's just been told about yes. her sister. <laughs> and she's just, like, running after her, like, oh. Like, what, what would happen if she did jump then? Like, right, just, yeah. just like, oh. By then, like, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, it's a short movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't understand why you wouldn't shout out to someone. Also, because they've not actually spoken to each other before. They haven't even seen each other's yeah, yeah. faces. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wouldn't you be like, hey, like, right. stop. Stop. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wait, don't. Yeah. And then also, like, you know, after the first kiss, like, how fast does Eloise run? Like, is she like... <laughs> Right, because it's not, she's not even in the kitchen, right? And she has to go, she's running through sand and then up a cliff. Well, we don't know how long Marianne was in the cave because after she right. left, she could have just been like, I'm just going to sit here and process this for, for, a, long for a long time. time. <laughs> yeah, fair. I mean, that's the only way that it does make sense because right, otherwise, right, yeah, right. you've got this long shot of like Marianne like walking and it's like, well, yeah, like she's already at home decided she's not gonna have dinner and like waiting and told sophie that right yeah right that's true and like also i mean this is me maybe being like just not making the connection first time but actually the last scene i didn't make the connection that it was the same tune as the harpsichord fire scene Uh, Um, oh yeah because obviously i knew the vivaldi song in from the concert hall but like I didn't get the song like that Marianne was trying to play initially so it took like another watch to be like <gasps> and then I was like oh my god and like basically every time I've rewatched it I've like noticed more things and being like oh my god it's even more deeper like what is happening mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's great yeah 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 all right shall we jump into our main discussion let's do it so to set this up We'll link to this in the show notes. And by the way, a note on the show notes. If you are looking for links that we mentioned in the show, it should be on any platform, but it will definitely be on the Anchor FM link. We have in the podcast description, there will be notes at the end of the description. So that is where you will find a link to the Vulture interview with Celine Siama, where she says the following quote. 
It was about art history mostly. I wanted the Vivaldi. I wanted women painters. There were a lot of women painters at the time, hundreds of them. It became more and more accurate in terms of this particular date, 1770, because it's before the French Revolution, before this very strong artistic feminine scene, feminine art critics. It felt legitimate to be telling the story at that time, and we could do very accurate research and not be fantasizing about something. So Celine clearly had a very specific vision for why she wanted to set it here. Can you tell us a little bit more about what was happening at that time and why why setting it just before the French Revolution might have been a guiding force for, for Celine here? Yeah, I mean, I think what she says about not having the revolution basically kind of interfering with the story, I think is the key point there, because I think that it would be hard to set it in, you know, 1789 or around in the 1790s without having to kind of discuss that. And equally, obviously, Eloise is from clearly, you know, an aristocratic family. And so, well, let's hope that the, the mother <laughs> and, and Eloise and Marianne all survived the revolution. <laughs> but, uh, Good whoa. <laughs> well, Eloise is in Milan, I guess. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, like you, you can focus on those kind of like old societal structures before they get a little bit dismantled. And I mean, I, you know, Brittany as a place is, you know, on the edge. I and mean, they chose that for cinema, cinematographic reason. Like, <laughs> that sounds right. <laughs> Because it's a very beautiful uh, place right, yeah. <laughs> to film it in and also kind of like quite remote than like setting it in Paris or something because then also it would have become a, you know, like kind of large period film, wouldn't it? With like all the extras and things that you would need and additional characters and, and sets and stuff. And I think that actually the simplicity of it essentially also makes it quite timeless as a story. And I think that that's what's also really powerful about it. And maybe why it made me think so much about history of women in all different time periods, because the way in which there aren't these male aggressive characters that you can be like, oh, they're just a horrible person being mean to this other character. And that is why this situation is the way it is. Like it actually, by not having any of those antagonistic characters or any men at all basically just shows you how all-encompassing patriarchy is or was in any time period you know and yeah I mean in terms of what's going on in France at the time I mean you know France was basically the cultural hub of Europe in the 18th century you know like architecture furniture fashion all is like you know emanating from France the language of the elites is French like including in England and other countries as well almost to the point where other European countries have got a bit of a backlash against kind of like, you know, we want to use our own national languages in the, you know, literature and all that kind of stuff because French had always been kind of the dominant one. And France's European power is obviously competing with Britain most heavily in terms of their imperial expansion. And in 1770, the monarch is Louis XV, who ruled for 59 years. So he, you know, is basically dominating most of the 18th century before the revolution. He's got kind of like mixed interpretations of his rule. So like some people see him as quite a a war hero because um, France helps to defeat Britain in the American Revolutionary War. But France massively loses in the Seven Years War. So he's this symbol of the Bourbon monarchy that's just like, you know, all the ultimate excess and, and, and not looking after the people of France, but for some others potentially seen as a little bit of a, because of the cultural impact of France, at least among the elites, kind of pretty influential. 
I wonder if, I, so I haven't seen Ammonite clearly, but it feels like these are all poised just like at the brink of something that's about to happen. So like Ammonite is at, well, I guess that's kind of. It's much later. When does Ammonite take 19th place? 19th century. It's like a hundred years later. Okay. But it's like the turn of the 19th century and this is at the turn of the 18th century, you know, so it's just like, it feels, I don't know. They're both lesbians at the brinks of centuries and on the coast. I don't know, like, <laughs> why Why is this a, That's a, a new common, trope. like, yeah. <laughs> Ammonite is also kind of set in sort of like a sparse landscape yeah. too, right? Lime Regis and Dorset. It's not like in a bustling city, yeah. it seems like. It's a very, very small village. <laughs> Still exists. You guys, you could go find your own animals. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. See, so it's so like we're gonna a... have more tourism now, probably, isn't it? <laughs> For a different reason, just like Brittany will. Oh, yeah. that's true. Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, they could. So lesbians could do like a little like hop from Brittany to wherever Ammonite was set, and then yeah, <laughs> yeah. lesbian tours, well. like lesbian <laughs> coastal lesbian tours. You could take that. What's that cruise ship called? <laughs> the lesbian one. Do you know what I'm talking about? There's like a no. lesbian-specific cruise ship. Well, they're probably not doing anything right now. This is how they can start back. The, you know, oh, start their yeah, business back true, up. Yeah. Is like, take <laughs> forget it, forget it. <laughs> okay, so you kind of talked about this before with Henry VIII, but is this a common thing that happens? It's like the slow 18th century Tinder version where you get a portrait painted of you, it gets sent to someone, they approve it, and then you are basically sent for and... I guess not officially married at that point, but like, is this is this a common thing that happened back then? Yeah, essentially. I mean, it's it's kind of hard for us now in the, you know, in the world in which we live now, where images are so prevalent all the time, everywhere in our lives. But actually, you know, for most people, actually seeing a picture was quite a hard thing to do. You know, like that is another reason why, um, you know, churches, for instance, the, were places where people went a lot because of the art and things that were inside them. Because, you know, you walked around and there wouldn't have been kind of like images in the same way that we have today. So how are you going to know who this person is that you're going to marry without some kind of painting? I mean, again, the, the key point to stress here, though, obviously, is that, you know, the woman has hardly any agency in this at all and is usually of a much, much younger age than the man you know decades older in many cases so like i said when i when i think now of most of the women in, in history i think i can't help but think of all the women probably feeling quite like how eloise felt you know a mixture of sadness and anger and frustration or eventual acceptance of this is just what i have to do even though i don't like it and finding ways to try and enjoy their life within the constraints of what was forced upon them um you know because i was really worried watching the whole film i, I was I just thought oh, they're just gonna die aren't they they're gonna throw them they're both gonna throw <laughs> yeah. themselves yeah. off the yeah. cliff and that's gonna be the end <laughs> and like, right. yeah oh, it's beautiful yeah and like oh what a lovely love story and actually it's so much better that that didn't happen because the message is so much more powerful for that not happening you know because you've got to be in a pretty bad mental space to get to that point you know right we wouldn't be here today if all the women through all the other time periods of history, didn't just kill themselves for being like, this is awful. Right. So it's, yeah, like interesting as a, to see how women were like coping with that situation as well. I love that Celine included Eloise's sister's story to sort of touch on that point, right? So it's like, Eloise is going to go through with this, but her sister didn't have to exist, right? Like the whole story 
could have held together. I don't think it would have been as strong, but like it could have held together that like this is the countess's only daughter. You know, she needs to get married off and this is just what's happening. But Celine made a very purposeful decision to also emphasize that sometimes this fate was so unacceptable that a woman would kill herself rather than follow through with it. And you can I feel like you can really feel it in that scene where Eloise it's the one where Eloise is like, you know about as much as I do, and that's why I'm, you know. That exact scene is what I used in my lesson, actually. Oh, nice. I literally had the quotes from that little bit of conversation, and I was just like, can you actually imagine yourself in this situation? You don't know anything about this man. You know what I mean? And you're just being told that you're going to this foreign country that you don't know anything about, and that's just way what you have to do. And I also made the point that, you know, apparently in 2018, like 52% of all marriages were arranged marriages today. Do you know what I mean? Like still today, like it's yeah. not like it's something that's wow. gone away. Yeah. And that was the point that I guess, like, you also got to confront these issues as well, haven't we? And not like hide away from them because they are happening yeah i mean we have no idea how many people made the choice that the sister did right because like she had no choice and so that's kind of in a sense the only choice she had right which was better than no choice right yeah and i I also think it's really really interesting from what we can see of eloise as a character like the fact that she somehow chooses to go to a convent you know what i mean like to Mm. like she's like i don't want to get married like i can see how this works like in society and i don't want that like i would rather like be in a convent where i don't marry and basically kind of semi-imprisoned for the rest of my life is better than being in this perpetually unequal position and it made me think about religion and convents in general in a, in a different way when we're talking about, you know, like the medieval period and, you know, lots of people being very religious. It's like, well, also it is a form of escape from the rest of society that is behaving in a in a different way to how the convent runs, if that makes sense, you know? Yeah. It's not like everyone was like completely religiously zealous in order to go into a convent necessarily. It might have been a bit more practical. Right, 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 you know? yeah. They weren't just like skipping to the gates with their guitar mm. case and, you know, hoping to be a governess <laughs> for some family of Austrian children. Are you referring to something specific? (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, it's interesting, though, that she chose the convent. And I have a couple questions about that. Like, one, just a side note, it's interesting that the convent ended up being both an escape for her, but also it's still like a super oppressive place. You know, it's just like an impression that she has now chosen. But I guess my bigger question there is, was that the only other option? Like, do you have any insights into what other possibilities there might have been so a career seems like it wasn't an option for her because when Marianne said like oh I'm taking over my father's business Eloise is like oh well that's why you don't understand me but like what else did women have available to them at the time well I mean particularly in this period in the late 18th century running up to what is going to become you know the revolution we do have examples of women making political pamphlets for example and like Eloise as a literate woman clearly if she can uh, you know read and stuff if she was able to gain access to so you know potentially via her marriage as well like you know like into kind of circles of women that were getting together to share their ideas and i don't know maybe starts as a book club and then becomes like you know, a mini revolutionary like body but you know like a lot of things did start that way in in, in many ways and there's a famous French political pamphleteer called Olympe de Gouges, who wrote the Declaration of the Rights of Women and of the Female Citizen in 1791. So this is just after the revolution. But she oh, was, wow. yeah. you know, like I'm imagining her 
as a kind of Eloise character because she was married at age 16 to a man and hated it and constantly said that, you know, it was the worst thing that ever happened to her. She said that I was sacrificed for no reason. You know, she said it was the tomb where, you know, love goes to die and trust goes to die. And she spent the rest of her life, she didn't marry again and she had a child from that marriage even though he died I think only a year after they were married and she spent the rest of her life politically campaigning and ends up getting guillotined during the reign of terror yeah um, wow uh, she's so yeah. there are things that women are doing and in England Mary Wollstonecraft uses Olympia de Gouge's writing to write Vindication of the Rights of Women which causes a stir in, in the UK and she's also a woman who was married and had a child and then was in another relationship so there are you know there are people breaking the boundaries let's say but they're very much kind of scorned or maybe maybe have, have gained higher reputations subsequently as well but they again they were right. they were there and they were you know pushing those ideas out there i think there has to be in order to like push the culture forward but i mm-hmm. wonder how many of those women were able to do that without eventually being punished in some pretty right. severe way yeah. or just harassed every day you know yeah, yeah. It does make the convent choice more, it does make that make more sense to me, though, because it's like, oh, well... I probably won't be murdered. Right. I mean, it's like the I don't know, the optics of it, right? It's like, <laughs> I've chosen God, right? So it's harder to argue yeah, with. Yeah. You know, it, it feels like the one other thing that women could do that was allowed. So it's like you either get married or you marry God. And either way, you know, you're kind of like spoken for. And so you can just like take yourself off the table <laughs> in a sense. I mean, yeah, and... and- in many ways, if, if that is the case, that that was some of the motivating factors for women to be going to convents, one would hope that that is what they then achieve. But I also wonder about, you know, priests and bishops and things still having much more power as men and how they interacted with nuns in convents and, mm-hmm. you know, maybe exploring them in different ways. I don't know. But Well, it's the way that Sophie also says that, like, Eloise was... Because it doesn't sound like she came super willingly you know out of the convent i forget how she phrased it but it's like they sent for her Mm. or something or it wasn't like oh yeah she came back when she heard her sister had died it was like nope it's your turn now yeah let's not forget as well like the generational impact of this because the mother right would have faced exactly the same thing you know we know that she is from italy and has come to france so the same thing happened to her and like in what ways did she rebel? Mm-hmm. Because I'm sure she did in, in some kind of way, even if it seems relatively minor. But like, I think that there's a sense that women in history, are oh, they just accepted their position. And I actually now kind of disagree with that. I think that if you're aware of your oppression, you don't just accept it, do you? Like you do things within the boundaries to you know, do things against it. I mean, as I say, like, these types of debates are also happening in other, like, fields of history. So, you know, like, with the teaching of slavery, for example, like, to not focus on abolition and all this kind of, like, political stuff, but to actually focus on the fact that, like, the slaves themselves were constantly rebelling and constantly doing things to try, in whatever ways they could, to get out of or deal with that oppressive position they were put in. And that story is often swept away in favor of oh well we all decided that actually slavery was wrong and actually slavery like was bad and then and then it got better and it's like well actually like no like do you know what i mean right it's the white savior complex right right there's agency to be had in in these other things and there is evidence for it so we've got to look at it as well yeah what's that quote power is never given it's demanded Mm -hmm. 
I don't remember. Yeah. But yeah, people didn't just decide to suddenly be benevolent to enslaved peoples. Yeah, it was rested back. And the same with women, right? Like, right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the Equal Rights yeah. Amendment has still not been passed in America, right? Right. So, Thank you for bringing like, that yeah. up. Yes. No. <laughs> no I'm I know. But, but do you know what I mean? I know, like, no, yeah. it's, true. Like, it's so true. Yeah, yeah. No, it's true. It's the narrative that we're told by <sighs> the dominant culture. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm total side note but when you were asking your question about the convent i thought your question was going to be like how gay were convents because <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's come up a lot <laughs> I mean, we can't go into that as well you want benedetta carlini right yeah that's a whole separate episode <laughs> i mean if i had to choose between marrying some dude full stop right or Who like might be like several decades older than you right that's the thing right yeah like... yeah yeah or going to like a place that is just women I'm picking the place with just women. (laughs) (laughs) But like we've been fed this story as well of like this, yeah, like the fairy tale idea of like, oh, you get married and like then your life will be better and all of this. And it's like, yeah, but like if your husband is 20, 30 years older than you, like that's very unlikely to be the case. And like, and you're gay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm now like really intrigued when I look at any historical story and see that they're, oh, this person married this person. It's like, oh, she was eight and he was 45. Like, right. oh my God. Yeah. 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 Mm, like, let's not pretend like this is like some really nice marriage that, like, was, you know. Right. Right, right, right. Yeah. They should update all the Disney movies so that the men are 30 to 40 years older than the women that, let's like. Let's just make this realistic. Yeah. 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 It's like, <laughs> let's talk about this happily ever after that you've been, yeah. you've been selling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So another thing we'd love to discuss with you is other examples of female painters from around this period of time that portrait takes place. There's one painter specifically that I've had in the back of my head for such a long time to do more research about because she's mentioned with regards to portrait kind of constantly, Vigie Lebrun. Yeah, Elizabeth Vigie Lebrun. Yeah. Yeah. Is she like an archetypal figure for Marianne? That's what it sounded like, and I haven't like looked more into it. I'm sorry. Yeah, there's a couple. There's a, like four, I would say, that are potential candidates that could be who Marianne is kind of based on in some ways. But I guess the main point is that, again, like female painters, you know, did exist, but often they have been overshadowed for various different reasons. I mean, one of the more famous, slightly earlier ones is Artemisia Gentileschi. Her artwork was being displayed in the National Gallery in London, and I was going to go next week, but now obviously everything's closed. Uh, again. Oh, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> but she's a, a 17th century Italian female painter who whose paintings are basically very, very similar to Caravaggio's. And a lot of her paintings also feature female characters in the paintings and it's a sad story of her life which often overshadowed her work was the fact that she was she went to trial over a rape a man had raped her when she was a teenager and she went to prosecute him which you know you think in the 17th century is actually again like you know pushing those boundaries quite a lot and a lot of her yeah like her paintings are are kind of you know women taking back control and, and you know sometimes using violence to to get that but in terms of in France in the 18th century, you've got Rose Adelaide de Croo. Wait, wait, wait. Before you move on, was she the one who did a painting of like the beheading of... Judith and the Holofernes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Did she paint herself into that? Did she paint herself as Judith and her assault? Well, people have like suggested that because yeah, okay. of what was going on in her life, <laughs> like is she, yeah, going around, you know, like the right. feelings of anger and, you know, yeah, let's behead all the men. <laughs> 
Right. <laughs> yeah. I was like, kind of like, yeah, like early feminist kind of icon, I guess. Sorry, what was the next one that you were going to... Oh, about uh, the French ones. So, yeah, Rose Adelaide de Croo, Anne Vallier-Coste, Adelaide Le Guillard, and Elizabeth Vigée-Lebrun. They were four that are like kind of working in this kind of period and, and a little bit later in the 1780s, who were, interestingly, endorsed by the daughters of King Louis XV and then later Queen Marie Antoinette. So it's women promoting women mm. and... Mm-hmm they join the French Academy of Arts as women, obviously. <laughs> well, actually, not that obviously, I guess. We were just saying that Marianne didn't put it under her name, but... Um, no, yeah, I was going to yeah, say right, that's yeah. not necessarily obvious. That's true. <laughs> so, yeah, like, because of the patronage of the royalty for their paintings, they were allowed to join under their own names, but they were constantly, constantly critiqued for their paintings and saying that, you know, it's so immodest for women to be displaying their skills so publicly and, um, (laughs) you know, all these, like... Oh, heavens. Which Marianne touches on, like, you know, how how could they have painted like this? They must have used models and that's, like, really bad. And there's all these, like, salacious rumours about them and, oh, they, you know, have had loads of affairs with lots of different women, men and, like, you know... And, and on the topic of art as well, people forget that, like, you know, that we um, see Sophie doing the embroidery, but, like, think of all of the clothing. Okay, maybe not quite in the 18th century because some of it's starting to become, you know, mechanised by them. But, you know, like, just a loom, like, in order to make any piece of cloth is actually, like, a massive job. And, you know, think of, like, yeah, like, the green dress that Eloise is wearing, like, how long that would have taken. And that that is, like, artwork of a kind. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Is made by women and, and is also often kind of forgotten and overlooked. And, you know, the amount of time it takes to make things like that when you can't just, like, go to the shop and buy a piece of cloth necessarily that easily, you know, because someone's got to make it, you know. <laughs> Did women do the, the large tapestry pieces that... Yeah. Was that mostly women or... Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. All of that kind of, yeah, embroidering type thing is, is usually done by women. Tapestry, I mean, particularly, uh, again, a little bit earlier than this, but tapestries were used, like, you know, absolutely huge ones in, in palaces, you know, mm-hmm. for not only yeah. for kind of, you know, a bit of, like, insulation of the building as huge pieces of material mm-hmm. on the on the walls, oh, but yeah. also, like... It is practical. But, like, showing these massive scenes from myths and stories and, and, and stuff, like, it's it's not... I, mean, I don't know if you've ever seen like a, a loom and like how it works, but like to actually work out like how you're going to like sew in like these things. Right. I just, I, oh, yeah. I, I don't know how they, yeah. how they did it really. Yeah. But, yeah. I think the skill involved is, yeah, mind blowing. Yeah. And it's a skill that we just don't think about, do we? Because we're just like used to, I don't know. I can't picture how you would embroider something that's eight feet by you know, 10 feet or whatever, because you have to, even if it's not like a loom where you're weaving things in across a segment, if you're poking a needle through, do you just like run around the back to like poke it back <laughs> through the other side? I don't know. The logistics yeah. of like what this would take are, are kind of mind blowing. Yeah. I also feel like if you have to ask if a woman did it, they probably did. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Because if it was a man, we would know. <laughs> that is also very true. Yeah. <laughs> this is probably going to sidetrack us a bit, but like I recently heard about Someone found a piece of bone that had 28 marks cut into it, and it was assumed that that was like an ancient calendar. And people have, until recently, talked about this artifact as being man's first attempt at a calendar. And finally, a woman archaeologist was like, why would a man need to track 
28 days, it's far more likely that a woman was trying to track her cycle, you know, so it was likely that it was woman's first attempt at calendar. And if you think about things like tools, right, if a woman is primarily the, the person in charge of taking care of a child, she's often one handed. And so it's also pretty likely that women innovated a lot of the, the hand tools that you find in these ancient dig sites yeah i mean artifacts and you know yeah archaeology wise like so much of it is just your interpretation which is so subjective most of the time mm. yeah but yeah like a lot of the time people just seem to assume oh well this is this was used by a man and with right yeah, right with default like women are just kind of forgotten even though they're like half the population but i guess <laughs> you know but that's like it's you know a result of the way in which we forget women or other ethnic minorities well you know there's a big uh, caused in the uk this year from a book that got published recently called black tudors which was about people of african origin living in the tudor period in england and it's like well of course they were here why would they not be here like you know they get on a boat like everybody else like you know do you know what i mean like and, yeah. And yeah princes from west african kingdoms right. were being educated in london and like do, do you know what wow. I mean? Like, it, there, there's much more interaction than like is given credit for. I think. Yeah, yeah. And, but on that one, like artifacts, like there was a Viking ship burial found, I think, in Norway a couple of years ago, and you know, it's like, oh, you know, there's a sword and a shield, and right. it's got to be a warrior. And then more recently, some people did some studies on the bones and actually like, it's like, well, there's a woman actually, like yeah. the, the bones don't yeah. lie. Yeah, 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 and yeah. they're like, well, it can't yeah. possibly be a woman. Like you've misidentified it. And it's like, <laughs> well, cool. or yeah. it could be a female warrior, couldn't it? Like they could exist. <laughs> How much twisting can we do to make this person who's buried with a sword and shield, like someone's wife, you know, it's like, oh, she probably yeah. got buried with her husband's weapons and she stuff. was just so sad that he died she that so she, you know yeah. <laughs> she was mourning and she died from that must heartbreak be and that yeah. must be it yeah the sword yeah. and the shield the man donated to her because right. he was so upset <laughs> yeah. of her death <laughs> yeah oh there you go oh. but it's just funny isn't it like i don't know it's just it's funny not clown funny but like sad funny <laughs> yeah. yeah and it's like if you picture these scenes in history without women's involvement without you know the involvement of people of color it's like what are they doing in the background are they just sitting there the whole time you know they're just sort of like yeah. slumped over while men do everything you know <laughs> yeah this is what i'm saying like we might we might not necessarily always have the evidence for it but like i mean what were women like like us or like any other <laughs> right, like yeah. of your friends that you know what were we doing in those situations? Because I can't imagine myself just sitting there being like, oh, yeah, like, you know. Just waiting to breathe, <laughs> you know. Just, just waiting to, like, have a baby yeah. or something. Like, that's <laughs> right. not, like, Literally you know just I mean? sitting, waiting to get pregnant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And But I'm plotting the men in between the pregnancies. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a very fulfilling life. Oh, I'm so sad now. <laughs> just like, uh, yeah, women through time. <laughs> yeah. So I did want to talk about this a little bit more because Marianne's character sort of blew me away in that like especially when she said she was just going to take over her father's business you know so first she's hired to do something professionally which is cool and I feel like I can't remember another film where I've seen a woman in this time period get hired to do something you know which is like why haven't I seen that before that feels I don't know ridiculous to me so she's a professional and she's taking over her father's business. I wanted to ask you, is this, obviously it's a realistic interpretation of a life that some women might have had at that time. Is it a larger percent of the population than I might think? Or do you think that Marianne's occupation was more of a rarity? Mm. 
I mean, again, it's a really good question. I think that we don't necessarily have that much. Well, I mean, research is being done on this kind of stuff now because it has been overlooked for so long. And it did strike me as it's like, yeah, like the way that she was like, oh, well, I'll just take over his business and I don't necessarily need to marry is potentially, is that completely realistic? The wider point there, though, is the fact that she's an artist is also partly because of what her father does so it's still kind of right. connected to like what are men doing like you know their, right, their right. options are limited to what the men in their lives are doing and in a way she's lucky in that she's born into you know this her father is an artist and therefore she has learned to paint and he's allowed her to do that but he could have allowed her not to do that as well mm-hmm. so let's not forget that and will he let her take it over alone or is she also going to have to marry because you know like yeah a woman can't run a business by herself I don't know so yeah it's a kind of difficult one that one but yeah yeah so to wrap things up and bring it back to the film what would you say our listeners should remember about history in regards to the film Professor Laura (laughs) (laughs) I mean I think the thing that I've taken away the most from it in many ways is just remember that there are you know women exist throughout history and they had personalities like all of the personalities of you know your friends or you know yourself as well and how would you react in the situations that they were put into and i think that the answer to most of that is probably via a form of rebellion within the constraints of what situation you were put into and I think that that yeah it's like the spirit of Eloise and Marianne is there in history and like let's go find those stories that definitely exist and you know talk about them and bring them to more mainstream conversations yes fuck yeah ah man thank you so much thank you it's fine thank you thank you so much to our now resident historian Laura (laughs) where can people find you online you can find me on twitter at lab historical and during lockdown for my students started a podcast (laughs) called lab history time there's an episode on french revolution and a little bit on women through time there if you want to take a look at it like i said they they were for my classes so they're a bit kind of uh, random topics let's say (laughs) but hopefully i'll have time to get back to it at some point but i haven't had a chance since may but you know it's there it will be a thing that i'll continue adding to and yeah any if you've got any historical consultancy freelance stuff or want to some research or writing then labhistorical at outlook.com cool great and we will link to the podcast episodes in our show notes which as you recall are at the end of our podcast descriptions thank you <laughs> <laughs> all right did we leave anything out do you have any burning historical questions for our new resident historian laura <laughs> Send them in and we will pass it along for... Well, we'll have you back. Mm-hmm. Cool. <laughs> yeah, there's plenty more to talk about. History is... There's always so much history to talk about. Yeah, sure. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> history never ends. <laughs> yeah, stay tuned for an upcoming episode on Orpheus and Eurydice. So that'll be exciting. And maybe in the future, gay convents. Who knows? <laughs> Perfect. Okay, great. <laughs> you can email us at podcastofaladyonfire at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram at podcastofaladyonfire. And we're also on Twitter at P-O-A-L-O-F podcast. And then finally, if you are enjoying the podcast, please consider rating us on Apple Podcasts as it helps others find the show. Thank you for listening. Thank you once again, Laura, for joining us. 
eight hours away. I mean, more than that, but time zone wise, eight hours away. Talk to you next week. Bye, everybody. Bye.